This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I'm Brent Nelson and Pryush, joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? Doing good. How are you doing? Doing okay. We're surviving. We are surviving. I feel like I've been saying that for like two years. I don't know why I don't have a different thing to report. That's sort of sad, I guess. <laughs> I feel like it it ebbs and flows on the level of how we are surviving, though. Yeah. Like, are we surviving because we're just barely above water? Or are we surviving because we're treading water, we're feeling pretty good, you know? Or are we we're floating? Are we floating and that's how we're surviving? So right now, I feel like we're at the... Sometimes treading, sometimes barely just above water getting air. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm feeling I've, I have been required to apologize to more people in the last, say, month and a half about not being able to do anything with them or for them for an extended period of time, including simple things um, than I had to do for a while before that. And it was already bad before that, but it's just like the last people just don't understand. Like in in September, um, you know, we usually have a pretty busy schedule. You know, we're pretty occupied constantly. So it's not like we're necessarily rooting around for work all the time. Like we have a very busy book of business. In September, we did twice as much work as we ordinarily do wow. in a month. It was yeah, it was insane. It was like dark of the morning till dark of the evening every day mm -hmm. of the week for weeks on end for all of september and i yeah. i think uh i think october is going to shape up to be similar to that and like i've been telling you since we're beyond october 15 i think there's going to be just a second wave of stuff to do because the accountants are going to realize that stuff needs to be done and then they'll start getting on people that we've been getting on mm -hmm. i completely agree with you and then you've got November and December, and then there's all your year-end transactions. Boom. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, and holidays. And your family wants to see you, too. Yeah. <laughs> forget forget those family people. <laughs> They'll just pop up intermittently as yeah. they're taking breaks, grabbing a, grabbing a coffee or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Feels that way. But um, notwithstanding the craziness, which is out of our control, because this is really being driven more by the U.S. Congress and thinking of other things that to a large degree are also out of all of our controls. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to bring Doug Nelson back to give us our ordinary review of what in the world is happening in the investment slash market side of things. So, Doug, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure, Brent and Rachel. And I do have a comment for you um, that I can explain why you're so busy. It's not just that there is a lot of uncertainty out there and you are busy trying to take care of transactions and structure deals for people such that they um, are best positioned to weather the potential tax treatment that those transactions may give rise to, but also very, and this is something that I've tried to stress upon all of our young advisors and the CPAs and attorneys that I work with. If you're a 
good tax attorney, you're just plain swamped. And when this time of year rolls around with pending tax legislation, it's just going to be double swamped. If you were a lousy tax attorney, I would venture to say you would not be near, nearly as busy. And the same holds true <laughs> for the CPAs out there. People will say to me, hey, look, I'm really frustrated because see, my CPA isn't getting back to me on this. And if it's a CPA that I know that I've worked with before, I'll say, you know, hang in there, just keep calling him. He's doing his best or she's doing her best, but good quality people, you're going to find that no matter where you go. They're all swamped. And the best thing we can do is find ways to assist them in getting this work done for us. If you find a CPA or a tax attorney that right now is twiddling their thumbs, you don't want to hire them. Okay? <laughs> yeah, not- I know. I know. I know that. I know. I, I, I agree. It's like, Sometimes uh, clients, you know, we love all of our clients, of course, but sometimes they'll sort of be like, hey, you know, you didn't call me back yesterday when I left a message. Did you get my message? I'm like, well, I'm sorry. I was literally doing work for other people all day long. It's sort of like if you wanted to go to the cardiologist and then you would just have an expectation that the cardiologist would pick the phone up at any moment and talk to you. It's like, no, you have to get on the cardiologist schedule. That's how you get the cardiologist to talk to you. That's how it is around here. Like if you get on the schedule, yeah, then I'll know I'll be able to talk to you and I can block everybody else out. But if you're just like calling me at random, it's not going to happen. That's only take a minute, Brent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the other, the other challenge is, Uh, And I think this is really true uh, for you and what you do as well. But the other challenge is that um, things are just complicated. And so in order to do what I feel like is a decent job, even on apparently simple tasks, it takes a lot of attention and time because things are just so complicated. And it's hard to express that to clients who feel like they have a simple question or they have a simple task and shouldn't it just be easy to just fit it in? It's like, well, maybe, but you know, doing that thing for you is going to take a solid, say, hour of my life thinking very hard about what we're doing on many levels of detail. And that takes effort and I only have so much effort in my body for each individual day. The the interesting thing with that is that I remember the day when a lot of good tax attorneys and CPAs really were capable of typically having a lot of answers at their fingertips from a tax perspective. Things have become much more complicated because I'll date myself. This is in the early 80s when I was first starting. Things were simpler then. What tax practice is to me today really is the study of recognizing a potential issue or a potential opportunity than going and researching it. It's not like you can say, oh yeah, well, this will work that way. It's more along the lines of, well, that's interesting. I see three or four potential pitfalls here and some potential potential opportunities. Let's research them and see how we can structure that so it will work. It's not a simple black and white as it appeared to be back in the early 80s. I'll take you, your word for it. I'm sorry. Were you born then, Rachel? I was not. I'm a 90s baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I squeaked in. I was born in 81. So, I, you know, all of my oh, okay. formative years, of course, were in that era. So I passed the CPA exam before Rachel was born. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's fun to remember. I'm sure that, that I'm sure that doesn't uh, it doesn't make you depressed at all. No, and, and that's not a function of how old I am. That's a function of how what a talented, very young person Rachel is. That's probably true. Aww. Yes. 
Thank you. I, I second it's like, that. It's like my orthopedic surgeon day told me. I said, Eric, am I getting old? He said, no, Doug, you're not getting old. You were just born too many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So should we get back to the economy? Yes. Remember remember why we were talking today. Let's do that. Get to it. Well, the first, uh, first part is this last quarter was pretty much a break even, mostly across most asset classes. Um, there are some very specifics. Emerging markets were off more than other equity asset classes. Bonds did okay. Global real estate was kind of okay, down a little bit. Um, so overall, an investment, a well-diversified investment portfolio was pretty much at a break-even. And we say, well, hold it. But there was a whole bunch of ups and downs. And yes, that's true. There were a lot of ups and downs in the markets. And that's really one of the things that Rachel brought up in her email to me was, well, what about this volatility? And so it's a good idea for us to go back and just start thinking a little bit about what gives rise to the volatility of stock prices and or bond prices and or real estate prices. All of these markets dislike and there is uncertainty, we will see volatility. So four or five years ago, I was attending an AICPA conference on income and estate tax planning, a very large conference in Las Vegas. One of the keynote speakers was an individual with a PhD in futurism or futurology or something like that. He was he commanded large dollars to tell large companies how their product should be positioned going into the future if they wanted to keep selling these products. And he started the presentation as one of the keynote speakers by saying, the pace of change will never be slower than it is today. Then he paused and he said, think about that and I'll repeat it again. The pace of change will never be slower than it is today. And I think over the last four or five years, he's been right. Now, if the pace of change is has accelerated and is continuing to accelerate, then I believe we can expect volatility. And that volatility will come from the uncertainty surrounding the paces of change and those changes. So let's step back and reflect on well, what really gives rise to the price of a piece of real estate or a stock or a bond, any type of investment vehicle. It really is the net present value or what the dollars are worth expected to be paid to you by virtue of owning that security in the future. So over the next 10 years, how much money will I receive from owning this particular position? What is the net present value of that today? That's what gives rise to a stock price and a bond price and pieces of real estate. So if we're seeing things changing very rapidly, we can expect the volatility associated with that future cash flow to be volatile. If it's volatile, it's uncertain. If it's uncertain, it gives rise to volatility in the net price. So to answer your question, I think we have seen a lot of volatility, and I really am not expecting that to change much, especially with some of the dysfunctions that we seem to be seeing in Washington, in local governments, in foreign governments, and in world trade. So all of those things are a little scary right now. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there. I think, you know, we've seen in terms of kind of going over those those different factors that kind of influence um, volatility and, and what we're seeing in the market, you know, with China, you've got the the Evergrande crisis, which some people are thinking is is going to be a huge crisis. Other people are now saying it's 
not so much going to be a crisis that they've got it handled. So you've got that foreign influence that potentially could this affect the U.S. markets. We've seen inflation numbers here, like you were saying, with Congress and all of the tax planning that we're dealing with, debt ceiling bill, all of that stuff. What's going on there? It definitely all factors into it. Um, in terms of you know the 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 bigger uh, the, the the bigger aspects that are kind of weighing in and and playing into all of this. Do you think there's one more than the other? I've heard a lot of people who are also saying that like the supply chain issues that we've seen this year and kind of headed into the holiday season, that's going to play into a big fact, big part of it. Is there any one more than the other you would say, Doug? That's a really good question because I, I think they're they're all related. And they'll all have an impact that hyperinflation, like we've seen in the past in the double digits, that would be uh, a really a bad, bad thing for us economically. Now, that brings up, well, what would cause that? Well, supply chain issues may cause it because prices will go up. But then we also see, what, 10,000 people walked off the job at a deer, um, John Deere plant. The union said, hey, we're walking off. So we may very well see wage inflation creeping in as well. So not just supply chain, but again, if they're not working, I would suggest that the supply of John Deere tractors isn't going to move very fast. So again, it, they're all related one to the other. Now, it's interesting that all of this comes on the heels of an interesting study that an economist uh, that just recently won the Nobel Prize in economics was for his work in identifying any relationship between migrant workers and gross domestic product. And what he found is that there is none. So that was that was rather interesting. Now, that's just migrant workers. That doesn't take into effect something like 10,000 people and affecting one product, which is farm equipment like that. So that, that could be interesting. And it's interesting too, you brought up in, in looking at that, you see this large, large enterprise that China def definitely does not want to fail. And they're already starting to use terms like too big to fail, which takes us all the way back to 2008 with our financial crisis. So now the shoe's on the other foot. Are we going to sit back and say, oh, can you believe what China did to the economy? If we're willing to say that, what do we have to say about ourselves in 2008? So here's the long, now here's the short answer to those questions. I've always placed my faith not in Washington, not in individuals, not in legislation, uh, not even in, in state and, and local governments. The one thing that we always find is people will find a way to supply a product that people want. Now, the price of those may go up over the short term because of all the things we've just discussed, but people will find a way. And if they find a way, then more people will get into the industry. The more people that get into the industry, theoretically, price should come down because there's firmer competition. I mean, whoever would have thought the guy selling books out of his garage would turn into the greatest retailer in the world in Amazon. So th there's a lot of these surprises. Take a look at the restaurant industry. We've all experienced this, uh, especially in airports. When COVID hit, restaurants and bars were punished. I mean, they were they were hit really hard because people were afraid, people didn't go in, then all the regulations and rules started shutting down, no indoor dining, masking, not masking, uh, you know, 
all of this stuff. A lot of those people in that industry were forced to find other forms of work, and they did. They went out and found it. Now they don't appear to be streaming back to that industry. So is that industry going to have to increase its price back into that business? It's an interesting um, change in in the workforce. So we'll see. Uh, and again, I wish I wish I had an answer for you that was definitive. But the one thing, and I, I guess I should have started this. I believe I've I've done this every time that I've been on your podcast is. Time based on what I think. We invest money based on what we know. And what we know are, is risk and return are related. That explains it. Stocks are riskier than bonds, so historically they earn more. B-rated bonds pay higher interest rates than AAA. Why? Very simple. So look for those investments that have an identifiable risk that provides a premium for investing in that risk. So that's what I know. Now, what I think is that it's going to be interesting. I'm still really confused by something else out there. And there's a, a, an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today on page B4, if anyone would like to see it. And actually, I was about to hold it up in front of the camera, but I realized this it doesn't have a video. No, <laughs> and, it's, and it, it definitely will not help any listener. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it will help. Rachel, it says Bitcoin ETF poised to launch. Yeah, that's right. That, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. Yep, I definitely wanted to. It's so interesting. So does does everyone fully understand what an ETF is? That's short for exchange traded fund, which is simply a mutual fund that you buy or sell like a stock. You buy or sell with other people. You don't send your money to a mutual fund company who then takes it into the fund. And then when you want to sell, they have to give your money back out of the fund. That's a traditional mutual fund. An exchange traded fund is simply one that's traded like a stock. They're very efficient. They're, they're interesting. So Bitcoin now is going to be traded in an ETF form. So that will give rise to many people being able to invest in Bitcoin. One of the issues that's come up is should Bitcoin be a piece of a portfolio. And so far, I don't think we have enough information to reach a conclusion yet. However, most economists have said from the very beginning that Bitcoin is simply one of the forms of cryptocurrencies. Now, when you think about that, cryptocurrency means that it's a currency. So is it different from the US dollar, the French franc, the lira, any of those? Probably over the long term, not. And so what do we expect the return to be on currency over lengthy time periods? The expectation is that that return will be zero. There are people that actively trade currencies as they relate to the dollar. If the French franc drops relative to the dollar, they would buy it. If it recovers and exceeds what it was in the past, they would sell it. That's going to be a timing strategy. So that's likely to be where things like Bitcoin end up, theoretically. Now, the flip side of that is it's been used as an investment now since its origin. And some people have made tremendous amounts of money on it. So you look at it and you say, well, what gives rise to the value of Bitcoin? There are people out there that have done research that would say, well, it's the blockchain technology. Well, that's open-ended technology that's available to everyone. So why would Bitcoin be of any value for that? And if it truly is a currency, all it is is like a French franc or a U.S. dollar. So I don't know. Uh, I wish I could tell you. Um, I wish I could explain 
what people thought when they were buying tulips in Europe, tulip bulbs in Europe, and what was that, the, the 1800s or something? And then the same craze hit the United States with um, mating pairs of ostriches. They were going to be all the rage, that everything for the ostrich was going to be sold, and even their meat was going to replace beef because it's better and healthier for you. That didn't work out so well. So now there's a whole bunch of mating pairs of ostriches sitting on ranches that cost $40,000 that are worth about five. So I don't know. We don't know where it will end up. Man, I hope Bitcoin does not turn into the ostrich situation. That <laughs> that would not be good. <laughs> no, it would not. The, uh, the interesting thing is, in all likelihood, cryptocurrencies, there will be a few that will be hugely successful once whatever entity decides they need to regulate it and authorize it and approve it. Think back to the, what, the early, what was it, 20s or 30s when cars were invented? There was like 123 different car manufacturers in the United States. 123. If you could have picked out Ford, Chevy, GM, you would have made tons of money. But if you picked, you know, the other 116 names, um, you wouldn't have done so well. So we really don't know yet. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you on that front. We've, you know, it's with, you know, Bitcoin success, it obviously looks like it's definitely a front runner, but you just never know at the end of the day, right? Togecoin could rule at the end of the day. We don't know. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, we've got so much of this this crypto wave kind of coming through with, you know, the, the ETF funds trying to get approved, the SEC really looking at how they could regulate this, whether or not um, investors should be able to physically hold these assets. And, you know, if, if that ever gets approved in the U.S., that would help uh, take it off, I would assume. But it's, you know, I've heard a lot of differing views on whether crypto in general, not just specifically Bitcoin, should be part of a well-diversified portfolio now, you know, given it does have quite a bit of volatility, but the immense growth, uh, growth of it, you know, especially with, with, you could just talk about Bitcoin this year. I mean, we're already at 63,000, which what we were at, I think back in the spring where we hit that high too. So it's, you know, we're hitting a high again and whether or not, you know, clients really should be looking at that as part of their portfolio if they want a little bit more of that higher risk allocation in there. But it's it's such an interesting topic. And I feel like, you know, to, to your point earlier, when you see crypto and, you know, it, it's supposed to be used as this free exchange currency, you can use it all over the world. It's not tied to one specific country's currency. Yet so much of the U.S. is invested in crypto that it almost is kind of tied to the U.S. currency, right? If, if say, all U.S. investors just completely drop their Bitcoin, that would not look good for the entire world. But, you know, when you, when you we're seeing this, just this growth, it's just a really interesting phenomenon. And it's um, definitely a lot of differing views on whether or not it should be part of someone's portfolio or left out of it until we kind of see a little bit more and wh where its future is going to be. That's um that's interesting too. Um, we will need mountains more data before we could actually reach a conclusion as to whether or not there is a differentiation in return characteristics between other asset classes and cryptocurrency. And we, we simply don't have enough historical data 
to determine that yet. The interesting thing is it's similar in my mind to commodities and people have argued for commodities being part of a portfolio for uh, quite some time. Most economists, um, you know, the higher level individuals um, would say probably not. There, you could make an argument that if you included commodities in a portfolio over a very long time period, it appears to reduce volatility by about three tenths of 1% per year. Now, what it also does is it decreases returns a little bit during that time period too, but not as much as it reduces volatility. So you could argue that there's a, um, a risk reduction characteristic by adding commodities to a portfolio. But individually, you see commodities bouncing around more than the rest of the portfolio, but that bouncing around is different than the other pieces of the portfolio, so it does dampen total portfolio volatility. However, you'd look at it and you'd say, holy moly, look at this thing bouncing all over the place, because most people don't have the discipline to look at a portfolio in total. They'll look at the pieces and they'll say, man, this is scaring me. Look what, look what commodities do bouncing all over the place. So in most cases, it's really not worth that emotional risk or that frame of reference risk that people experience to add it to a portfolio. As differentiated from emerging markets, which tanked last quarter, by the way, 8%, mostly due to China, mostly due to Evergrande. Um, emerging markets has that same volatile uh, characteristic that commodities do. It bounces all over the place. However, commodities has a historical rate of return higher than other equities. So for that volatility, you're being paid. If that were true with commodities, then I would say, well, let's put it into the portfolio then. But I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that suggests that it's adding enough benefit to offset the risk of seeing what it does in, in the portfolio. But again, you know, 35 basis points or one third, you know, of a percent, at least, that's something. So there is a strong argument there. The other, the flip side of that is that commodities are the base materials of most everything else of the companies that you're investing in. So if you are investing in any um, manufacturing, large cap production companies, um, you're already invested in commodities. Definitely. Think, yeah. And do you think, um, just as a little quick follow up there, do you think it's the, the issue really with that analogy of, and I've heard this analogy of like commodities or even uh, some people suggesting like gold and silver are equivalent to uh, cryptocurrencies. Do you think that the deficiency in that analogy is just that cryptocurrencies haven't been around long enough to have a large enough data set to know what they actually do over a long period of time, whereas, of course, commodities to a large degree have been around for a very long time and you can see what they've done historically. So you have some expectation of what the future might look like. Yes, and that's that's how you, you develop um, correlations. Are commodities acting differently than stocks? There's enough historical data that you can look at that and say, yes, yes, they are. Is cryptocurrency acting different than stocks? There isn't enough historical data to, to determine that yet. We may look back and say, well, you don't really look at it. It really looks just like emerging market stocks. It's going up when they're going up, going down when, when they're going down. I, you know, I don't know. There may be some correlation there. Um, the other interesting thing as it relates to, and this, this is what I discussed earlier, is the expected return on currency is zero. And you think about commodities the same way. Commodities make up 
the base materials of everything that's being produced. So what is the expected return on commodities, all commodities combined? It's simply going to be inflation. So there is no premium for investing in commodities from an expected return standpoint. Now people would argue, well, there's historical data, this and that, and you can data mine. In the industry, data mining is going and finding a time period that says what you want it to say and saying, well, look, from the time period of here to here, this is what happened. Take a look at people data mined big time uh, in the decade ending 2010 saying, oh, this was the lost decade. The S&P 500 broke even over 10 years. So investing in stocks is stupid. No, you, you data mined. You took the S&P 500 over 10 year time period, a well-diversified portfolio invested 60% in stocks and real estate and 40% in bonds doubled over that 10 year time period. So don't tell people investing in stocks is stupid because you know you can you, it'll be flat over 10 years. That that's that's people data mining. Yeah, it's really interesting because I I've, I've been kind of having this conversation with clients who are contemplating making gifts and and uh, a few times I have resorted to sending them the link to the Vanguard study of historical returns on different mixes of investments, you know, like 80% stocks, you know, 60 40, 40 60, you know, so they can see like Okay, when I told you, if you look at the market historically, even heavily invested in bonds gets you 6%, therefore you should definitely do this gifting. Here is the, here's what I'm relying on. I'm not just saying this, this is what Vanguard said. Yeah, here's the same I, thing. I hope, the- I hope that's not data mining, by the way. That's, that's more my point. I hope I'm not being uh, like picking and choosing by picking the Vanguard study. No, no, Vanguard does a good job. I, I uh, yeah, have a lot of respect for them. Um, but yeah, that, that data is pretty solid, but you can see the volatility in any of the graphs. And if, if our listeners could see this um, from 1988, um, $10,000 would have grown to over $160,000 um, as of the end of this September quarter in 100% stocks. Uh, a portfolio of 75% stocks and 25% bonds would have grown to about 110,000. Uh, 50% stocks and 50% bonds would have grown to about 70,000. U.S. 100% Treasury bills over that time period from January of 1988 all the way through the end of this last quarter, a $10,000 investment would be worth just about $24,000 right now. So stocks are riskier than bonds. So they earn more. Otherwise, people wouldn't invest in it. Pretty simple story. People people say, Doug, why do you get paid for telling a simple story over and over? I said, you know, mostly because people want something more. They want more complication. They want to be able to say, you know, this or that or that or this. But really a well-diversified portfolio, if you're truly well-diversified, anytime you're at a cocktail party, somebody says, oh man, I tell you, I got in on Bitcoin, uh, you know, about two years ago and I made a bundle. Well, if you own a well-diversified portfolio, you've got some implication of Bitcoin. You say, oh yeah, I've had it from the very beginning. You can say that. That may represent one one hundredth of a percent of your portfolio, but you can say it. If people say, oh man, I tell you, emerging markets, that's just been the place to be. Oh yeah been there since the beginning. If you're in a well-diversified portfolio, it doesn't matter what someone says. You can all, yeah, I'm there too. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And to the point that you were making, Doug, about if you kind of have a diversified portfolio and you're invested in essentially all of the largest companies that exist, you're invested in commodities, you're invested in real estate, you're invested in crypto, you're invested in retail. You have a very wide investment because that's what all those businesses do. They're heavily yeah. invested in all of that stuff. Yeah. And that's what I say, um, I, you know, a well-diversified portfolio. I'm talking about, you've, I've, I've heard some 
salespeople out there saying, oh yeah, well diversified, that means you gotta have 40 or 50 stocks. No, no, a, a well diversified portfolio is over 12,000 different stocks worldwide. That's diversification. That's, uh, I had another meeting today with, with uh, a client and her, her two attorneys. And one of them described it. And I said I was going to use this because I thought it was great. He said, Doug, I just feel like there's this rogue wave coming. Do you know what a rogue wave is? And I said, no. And he said, well, it's, it's like, you know, once in a while along the coast of California, you can be out there and the surf will be going along and you can surf in these nice waves. And this rogue wave will come out of nowhere and it'll crash and it'll wipe out a bunch of people and uh, on the beach and it's got such strong undertow and suck them out in the ocean. It's just this terrible thing. And I feel like that's where we are on the economy. And I said, okay, I, I understand that. And that's that uncertainty we're talking about, that rogue wave. So here's what we do. We have this portfolio. Do you see the way it's structured? 12,000 at least, over 12,000 stocks worldwide, 1,200, at least 1,200 different bonds worldwide, eight or 900 pieces of real estate worldwide. That's diversification. So our client sitting here in this meeting with us, that 50 foot wave, all she's worried about is how she's going to help the people down below because her portfolio is that portfolio on top of a 5,000 foot hill. That 50 foot wave does not impact her other than how she feels about you on your surfboard surfing down the face of that 50 foot wave. She's worried about you but she's not worried about her financial future. I like that. But there you go. That's that's how um, we talk about investing. But the most fun part, I mean, people don't want to talk about the basics of investing, the real part of investing. They want to talk about, hey, man, see Bitcoin, this shop that's bouncing all over. What about Evergrande? Oh, what's I going to do with the real estate market? I mean, we all talked about the price of real estate in the big cities. What's going to happen there with COVID? Oh, everybody's leaving the big cities and moving out to the suburbs. And well, we're starting to see some prices softening in big cities. But I mean, so far, I, I don't see any big banks folding because all of their loans on those huge buildings in downtown New York City have gone bad. It doesn't appear to be happening. So we all like to talk about what all these things mean and the direct correlation between that and something else. Whereas, as we discussed earlier, we, we, we really want to search that singular cause and effect relationship, and it just rarely ever exists. There's always a multitude of things that give rise to something occurring. And if you knew what that singular cause and effect relationship was, you wouldn't be talking about it. You'd be, <laughs> sitting, you'd be sitting on a beach with your Mai Tais enjoying the rest of your life. You wouldn't be talking to schmucks like us. Oh, no, no way. If you guys called me up, even on my boat, I'd have good Wi-Fi. I'd say, sure, I'll chat with you. <laughs> You'd do it. <laughs> everybody else, though, to the exclusion of everybody else. Uh, well, um, the, the one thing that I do, I think we it would behoove us to keep an eye on uh, is inflation, because I think we're seeing a lot of the characteristics of many things that would give rise to an inflationary trend. And right now, um, the Fed is not too worried about it because we we're coming off multiple years of very low inflation. So if we have five, 6%, 7% inflation for a couple of years, it still smooths out overall over lengthy time periods. However, there, there may be surprises, you know, some surprises. These uh, supply chain issues combined with wage inflation, combined with the lack of, uh, of materials to produce, it, it we don't know where that's going to lead us yet. So I think we have to, to watch that and we have to recognize, well, we don't have to, but it's a good idea to recognize that inflation 
you know, there isn't these, these specific things that you can say, oh yeah, this is where you have to be in an inflationary period. Because number one, we don't know when inflation is going to occur, so we don't know when to go into those specific assets. A well-diversified portfolio of equities, especially small cap equities and value equities, seem to do quite well during inflationary. A lot of the, the wage inflation hits the big growth companies a lot harder than it does the smaller value companies. So again, what's America been built on? Small companies. Let's go out there and support all these small companies. Yeah, and it's interesting because that's something, that's a conversation I have with my clients pretty frequently, particularly when they're trying to do estate tax planning because the the planning numbers tend to be tied to inflation. And what I try to explain to them is that historically speaking, um, their investments will outpace inflation. That's the problem. They're going to be worth more than their inflation adjusted number. So therefore, you can't just hold it and hope that, you know, these exemption numbers will help you, even if they're inflation adjusted. It doesn't tend to pan out that way historically. And it's, you know, to your point, if we get double digit inflation, like, of course, that's that would be bad and nobody wants that. But we also can't really predict it. And I think my sense is that's what's got people so nervous is it's so difficult to predict. And there are indicators that might indicate you would have higher inflation and and there is higher inflation. I mean, the inflation adjustments on Social Security just went up quite a bit. You're starting to see some of the federal base uh, interest rates creep up a little bit as a result of that. And so I think it's got people a little on edge because we've been through a very long period of time where interest rates were either falling or flat. And when you see it starting to go back up, that makes you a little nervous, Yeah. Per- particular people who remember when there used to be double digit inflation. Yep. So we'll keep our, our eye on that and hopefully we'll end up with a, a good remainder of the year and go into next year, maybe with less COVID and uh, a brighter outlook on everything. I hope. Yes, hopefully so. Mm-hmm. Well, as usual, Doug, we really appreciate you spending time with us and uh, catching us up on on what's going. It's very relevant for us and our clients. So we are very glad to have that conversation. It is my pleasure. Anytime. I enjoy these. All right. Well, although, then, although, although um, why don't we, why aren't we getting the same press that Joe Rogan is? <laughs> I mean, We're going I, to get there. Okay. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. But I, I, I was promised that we would split that contract 90 for me and five for each of you. That's what I was told. Okay. I'm 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 good with that, but I would argue Rachel deserves more. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna go to the negotiation table, Brent. <laughs> okay, That's, all um, right. Uh uh-uh, uh not gonna not gonna work for me there. <laughs> all right, ninety for me, seven for Rachel, three for Doug. Doug you're getting <laughs> Doug, you're getting three percent on a hundred million dollars. You should be thanking me. That is so kind and generous of you, Brent. You're welcome. And you know what I think it is? If we want that to command those types of uh, that type of of deal, I think we got to start smoking cigars and drinking whiskey. I mean, I, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should. We could do like the Comedy Central thing and do like uh, drunk episodes. Oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> Drunk investment advice. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> on that note, it's uh, as usual, a pleasure, Doug. Thank you so much. You bet. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.